Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. What are you supposed to be, some kind of a cosmonaut? <laughs> no, we're exterminators. Somebody saw a cockroach up on 12. That's got to be some cockroach. Bite your head off, man. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten, joined by Chad Gross. Greetings, Chad. Hey, good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, and it's good evening on my time. Hey, I don't know if the listeners know, but there's a like a five-hour time difference between Chad and me. Mine's the right time. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. on, uh, I'm a GMT, GMT yeah. baby all the way. Oh, Eli's in the waiting room, and we're oh. going to tell you a little bit about Eli right now. Our guest today is Eli Ayala. He's a Christian apologist and the founder of Revealed Apologetics. He's a Christian YouTuber. He's done debates, lectures, and teachings, and he's a traveling speaker as well. He's married with three kids and lives in North Carolina. He's got a Master's of Arts in Theological Studies and a Master of Divinity with a theological focus from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. You can find his stuff over at revealedapologetics.com or look up Revealed Apologetics on YouTube or your podcast player of choice for his streaming videos and such. And we'll point you to other resources he has towards the end of today's interview. And the purpose of today's interview is to talk to him a little bit about how we do apologetics. What does that look like? What's the scriptural foundation for how we do our apologetics? Is there one method better than the other or more appropriate than the other? It's sort of an in-house discussion amongst apologists with a lot of different views. And we're going to see what Eli's view is today and talk a little bit about it with him. So I'm looking forward to this one, Chad. Yes, me too. I always love talking to people about apologetic methodology. And I like the fact that on Eli's YouTube channel, he's, he's got people who you know come from different views. And so I think that's great to encourage um, discussion amongst apologists who have different approaches. And so hopefully this will be really educational. Cool. Let's go right to it. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Eli, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, welcome. Nice to meet you. Where do you live? Tell us a little about your family and uh, what keeps you busy during the day. Yeah, I live in Clayton, North Carolina with my family. I'm married to my wife, Brianne. I have three kids, two, five, and seven. So they definitely keep us busy. But our um, my middle kid and my eldest, they're angels and God has blessed us with the terror of our youngest who keeps us on our toes. Uh, so, um, you know, yeah, when people when people say, hey, Eli, why haven't you written a book by now? It's I just blame it on my youngest kid. This <laughs> is just impossible uh, to have complete uh, yeah. peace at the house. But I'm, I'm just kidding. Of course, I have three little kids. Uh, I live in Clayton, North Carolina. In the daytime, I am a full time teacher. I teach a Christian private school. Uh, when I was in New York, I taught apologetics and theology for over 10 years uh, to middle school and high school students. And then when I moved down to North Carolina, I um, got hired at a, a wonderful school in Cary, North Carolina, and I taught 11th grade and 12th grade history. So U.S. history and European history. I survived that my first year last year, and then they gracefully moved me to teach sixth grade Bible and eighth grade logic. So that's what I'll be doing more in my wheelhouse. That's what I'll be doing uh, next year. When I'm not teaching uh, students, I am an apologist. I'm a traveling speaker. I teach online course. I do YouTube. And as you guys know, I interview uh, guests, sort of like what, what you guys do, interview various um, apologists. I place a great emphasis on apologetics in general. 
with presuppositional apologetics being a more, and that'll be the only time I'll use the term presuppositional <laughs> apologetics more specifically. And, uh, my hope is to just promote apologetics and hopefully promote a method of doing it that is effective and, of course, biblical. So that's what I'm all about. Excellent. Yeah, I'm an educator as well, and they they take great delight, whether you're in public education or private education, of moving you around. Oh, yes. Yes. Your chess piece. And if, you know. Exactly. Sacrifice the pawn, you know, that's how it goes. And sometimes you're the pawn. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I also, I should mention, I, I also love movies. So when I'm not doing anything serious, I love to just watch movies, oldies. I'm a big eighties and nineties guy. And of course, uh, anything with special effects, loud noises and explosions, uh, I'm a fan of. So is there any specific eighties movie, Eli, that you might be a fan of that you perhaps may want to mention? It's looking at me, Ray. <laughs> I, I am. I am a huge Ghostbusters fan. Except, yes! for, except for the one that I will not I will not name the 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 Ghostbusters movie they made with certain characters that were completely uh not my cup of tea. But the recent one, Ghostbusters Afterlife, was excellent, I thought. And I'm looking forward Wasn't to it. Sequel. They're making another one, so I'm very happy about that. At any rate, yes. I'm a big Ghostbusters fan. I love uh, Star Wars, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's uh, <clears throat> we won't we won't speak about the last episode that was released. It was uh, I wasn't a big fan, but uh, oh that'll be that could be a topic for an, another episode. So, but I mean, real quick, Obi-Wan's disguise when he had Leia under the, the trench coat. I mean, that was pretty good. I mean, <laughs> no, my, nobody I ever would I thought they were going to be buying movie tickets or something. And it was like <laughs> Elvin and the Chipmunks under there, you know? <laughs> My oh, favorite is when bad. is when yeah, that, that woman slapped the stormtrooper in the head. I don't know. Do you see oh, that yeah. scene? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had yeah. to catch. I was like, what was that again? I, okay. Yeah. So at any rate, two more episodes uh, left. We'll see what happens. Greatest hits. Anyway. Right. So you're here and we're going to talk about apologetics, which is great. And we're looking forward to it. I guess the first thing is, you know, how did you actually get into apologetics and maybe what were your influences and the backstory there? Yeah, well, I was born and raised in the church. My earliest memory was me being in church. I grew up in a, in a Spanish Pentecostal church on Long Island, New York. It was a very small church, uh, but we were very close. Uh, the youth group consisted of a handful of friends and some cousins that I were really we were really close together, and we um, loved to talk about you know the Bible, theology. Uh, when we had sleepovers, we'd watch a movie and then stay up all night talking about the things of God. And so arguing and disagreeing and going back and forth was literally just part of growing up. Um, and growing up in a, in a particularly Spanish Pentecostal context, our services were very long. So it's very different than kind of the generic American church. Our service was, for services would be two and a half to three hours long. And I would joke around that uh, Jesus would leave before the service was over. It was just, it <laughs> felt like forever. Um, so when we had church services, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, uh, one service in the morning on Sunday, and then in the evening on Sunday, and then we'd have events, you know, spread out throughout the month. And so I was always in church and I was always, pardon, fascinated with um, the Bible now, interestingly enough, the church that I grew up in uh, was completely in Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish. And even now as an adult, I understand Spanish, but I respond to people in English. So um, as a young kid, as, as soon as I was able to read, because I, I couldn't understand what was being uh, spoken from the pulpit, I would just pick up my little NIV Bible, and I would just read my Bible Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays for two and a half to three hours uh, apiece uh, every single time we were at church 
all the way up until I was an adult. So very early on, I was raised in a context where I just picked up my Bible, read it, and it was through that process that I began to ask a lot of questions. I fell in love with theology even before I knew what theology was. Um, and I always had kind of this inquisitive mind. I, I described myself as a Christian skeptic. I believed the Bible to be the word of God, but I always would prick and prod. Why do we do this? Why do we believe this? What is the biblical foundation for this, that, or the other thing? Especially being in a church context where it could sometimes be very legalistic. You know, we weren't allowed to go to the beach, the movies, uh, drink any type of alcohol was seen as, you know, was, uh, you know, seen as sinful. So I'd always ask questions and always be in the pastor's office, you know, picking people's brains and things like that. So hmm. it was through that upbringing, which I eventually left my Christian bubble and took a class in a community college um, entitled um, The Bible as Literature. And I was like, well, I mean, I've read the Bible since I was a little kid. So I thought that would be a fun class to, to take. And so when I took that class, it was interesting. The professor, um, I still remember, he wore a T-shirt, looked like he was wearing pajamas or something, very casual, and sandals. Uh, he looked like this was like his, you know, side job. Um, he would spend the first 20 minutes to a half hour of class just bashing the Bible and uh, just telling us why he thought the Bible, while an important piece of literature, it really wasn't the word of God. And of course, you had people in the classroom agreeing and, you know, giving their two cents. And of course, I'd always have my hand up and give pushback and things like that. But it was taking that class that for the first time I was presented with issues that I never really heard before. Growing up in a Christian bubble, I didn't hear about apparent biblical contradictions and, you know, various things like that. And so I did a little experiment with myself. I pretended to be an atheist for a short period of time. And so I did some research on various arguments uh, against Christianity, against the existence of God. And then after I was satisfied and I kind of got a grip as to what sort of objections people raise, I said, okay, Christianity has been around for 2000 years. Like surely someone has responded to some of these things. And through um, a series of events, I was exposed to first the website CARM, which interestingly enough, Matt Slick is a good friend of mine now, but back mm -hmm. in the day, that was the first exposure I had of like specifically like an apologetics resource. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, referencing books, I kind of went to some books and other sites and learned that there was an entire intellectual tradition of the Christian faith that I really wasn't ever aware of. And so that opened up my mind to um, a whole nother realm of thinking. And I learned very quickly that not only did the Christian faith provide answers to the objections that my professor was raising, the objections that my professor was raising along with the objections raised by those in the class were old. They were refuted like centuries ago. Yeah. <laughs> so I was yeah. like, oh my goodness, you know. Um, as I got into that and I kind of uh, began to uh, answer people's questions in my inner circles when people, you know, saw I had an interest and they would give me Bible questions and things like that. Um, eventually, my brother-in-law, when he was, um, this is after he was married, I guess, um, he was going to DJ. I hope I'm remembering the story correctly. This is interesting. He was going to DJ for a friend who was getting married, but their original DJ uh, kind of backed out. So they asked my brother-in-law to do it. So he wanted to borrow my iPod so that he can fill my iPod with his music and you, you know, attach it to a speaker. And that would be the music for the reception because the original DJ kind of backed out for whatever reason. So he did that. And after that, he gave me back my iPod, uh, but he didn't remove his stuff from my iPod. And so I'm listening to my iPod. I'm like, who's this guy, William Lane Craig, you know, and I'm, I'm listening to these debates and who's this guy, Greg Bonson? Like, this is different. And it was there at that moment. It changed my entire life. I began to consume, consume, consume. I heard a book, I would get it, and I would just be um, entrenched 
in listening and reading. So largely because of my brother-in-law and largely because of my interest, interestingly enough, in eschatology. When I read the book by Gary DeMar, Last Day's Madness, Obsession of the Modern Church, it was also through American Vision where I also learned more about Greg Bonson. And I was able to um, purchase a a teaching uh, set that he did on CD. And my car became, my wife could attest, my car became a traveling seminary. Like every time we were on road trips, it would just be Bonson. It would be debates. It'd be William Lane Craig debates and lectures and things like that. And it's, it hasn't changed since then. You know, I'm speaking at a, at a, an event in New Jersey and they asked me if, if they, if I wanted to be flown out. I was like, nope, I'd like to drive because that's when I get all my study in. So I'll be driving from North Carolina all the way up to New Jersey and hopefully I'll be smarter by the time I get back. (laughs) So so real quick, your brother-in-law, when he gave you back the iPod that had all the music and stuff on it, was he, was he doing like William Lane Craig, Greg Bonson remixes? Is, is that what he was playing at the wedding? You know? That's right. That's right. Or, or, okay. All right, cool. No, I got to hear those music you, you, and some lectures and stuff. And it was when William Lane Craig, like, I don't even think reasonable faith. I don't remember the, I don't remember the year. So don't, so don't quote me on this, but I remember like William Lane Craig wasn't as popular just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I remember, cause I remember he was very clear, very articulate. I'm like, man, this guy's pretty cool. Um, so that was the beginning for me. I, I like devoured all of the podcasts and stuff. So excellent. Yeah. Yeah. You do a YouTube channel, which you're cranking out the content and you were telling me that you just do things live so you don't have to edit. And it was tempting, <laughs> tempting for a minute there. Cause wow. Imagine not having to edit anything, but at any rate, I digress. Um, and so on your YouTube channel, you is called Revealed Apologetics, and it will point people there. They can find it on YouTube. How many videos do you typically do in a, in a week? Just uh, one or two? Or talk about the frequency and what you talk about on there. Well, I try to do at least one, but because everything is based upon when the people I invite are available, um, sometimes um, I'll do three a week. Other mm-hmm. weeks I'll do two. And, you know, if I'm busy with my family, I'll do none. But for the most part, yeah. they are coming out pretty frequently. I like to cover a wide range of topics. As I said before, I like to focus on apologetics. I focus primarily on what some of your listeners might be familiar with in terms of kind of the reformed apologetics, the presuppositional mm-hmm. method. We can kind of unpack that. Sure. Um, but I, I do cover general apologetics as well. I've had Frank Turek on, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. Um, so people within the classical tradition, evidential tradition, um, then I cover a wide range of issues relating to reform theology. Um, so I've had, um, Guillaume Bignon on, I've had Tyler Vela of the freed thinker podcast on, he's really good in debating reform, um, issues in reform theology. Um, so I, you know, cover things relating to Calvinism, Molinism. I've had Dr. White on to critique Molinism. I've had Molinist on to, you know, give, you know, response. Uh, so I don't know if you're familiar with the debate recently between James White and Tim Stratton. Oh uh, yeah. That was actually originally, I was originally trying to set that up myself, but then someone offered to do it live. So they ended up doing it live instead. So that was kind of, uh, you know, in the background there, I really wanted to set that up because I think uh, Calvinism, Molinism discussions are so interesting and they cover some important topics as well. So I cover all sorts of topics along those lines on my channel. Great. Well, today, for those who are listening, this is a little bit of a meta discussion in the sense of we're not just tackling questions about the Christian faith, but we're talking about, well, how do we go about tackling the questions or objections to the Christian faith? How do we make a case 
for Christianity? Is there a method to that? Is there a right way, a wrong way? Is there, you know, what does the Bible tell us, prescribe or instruct us to do that? Are there methods that are more God-honoring than others? And so we kind of want to look at that because within the apologetics community, they, there are different approaches like what you might call classical apologetics or evidential apologetics. And Eli's view would be along the category of what would be commonly called presuppositional apologetics. So we're going to try to unpack what that view is today and make a case for it in the sense of let's describe this as best we can and then look at what might be some of the common objections or criticisms of that and how it responds to those. And so the goal here is to, for anyone who's listening, whether you've been into apologetics for a long time or even a short time and you don't even, haven't even heard that word before, we want to be able to describe this approach in a way that makes sense. And what it, you, by the time we're done with the podcast, if we've achieved our goal, you will know what that means, what that looks like. When we're talking about, Eli, when we're talking about the how of apologetics, what do you think is really important and why? Yeah, I think the how is based upon the standard of scripture. So I know there's kind of a common meme that goes around with respect uh, to the methodology that I use. By what standard, right? I don't know if you've heard this before. But I think that's a good question to ask. When I ask myself, how should I be doing apologetics? I need to ask myself, well, what is the standard by which uh, that informs the method that I use? And so um, I would I would describe my methodology as one that is being in, that's being informed by the principles of Scripture. So when I ask the question, "How should I be doing it?" I should be doing it in a way that draws from biblical principles. Um, so I think that the um, you know some people may might disagree with this, but some people think that the Bible doesn't have much to say with respect to the how. It just kind of speaks to the fact that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us, right? The first Peter 3.15. But I do think that the Bible, while not an apologetic manual, it does give us principles and certain theological convictions that inform how we should be thinking about not only everything that we think about uh, in general, but more specifically, how we should be thinking about the reasoning process, how we should be engaging the unbeliever. The Bible informs us what the nature of the unbeliever is and how that informs how we confront them and present to them the claims of scripture. So with respect to keep it really simple, to, with respect to the how of apologetics, I think the answer to that is going to be based upon what the Bible teaches with respect to our reasoning capacities and how we should approach the entire field of unbelief uh, as we present and defend the gospel. So Eli, what would you say are some some key scriptures or passages that kind of inform your methodology, your apologetic methodology? Yeah, I would appeal to uh, Genesis chapter one, where uh, first, for example, if if you take a look at the foundation of any worldview, we have three main pillars of, of every worldview. We have metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Now, metaphysics is a big old fancy word which refers to our theory of reality, right? We ask the question, what is real? What is the nature of reality itself? And the foundational metaphysical issue for the Christian is really rooted in the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. So we make a distinction between the creator and the creature, okay? So that is with respect to my, my metaphysic. Um, with respect to epistemology, another fancy word, um, which just deals with the nature of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Um, there are certain Bible passages based upon our metaphysic, and it, it has entailments with respect to what we should believe about the nature of knowledge. Um, and so the Bible does speak about uh, the fact that the 
uh, beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So there's something very much important about the connection of um, having reverence for God in the area of attaining knowledge. It also, the Bible also speaks of the, of the issue of the authority of God. When God um, made a covenant with Abraham, he made a promise with Abraham, it says that he can swear by none other because there was no one else higher than him. So he swore by himself. So the issue of what the Bible says with respect to the nature of divine authority. So when you take all of those things, they also inform our ethics, that other foundation of our worldview, which asks the question, how should we live our lives? Um, so all of these kind of main foundations kind of inform the content of our worldview. And when we're engaging in apologetics, a person who holds to my perspective just really tries to be intentional about using a method that is consistent with those very firm metaphysical, epistemological and ethical, you know, the content of those three pillars. And so it's an issue of, of, of consistency. However, if I were to summarize the method in a very simple way, without getting overly technical, I, I'll use kind of biblical categories. Um, I call, if you know my channel, it's called Revealed Apologetics. And the reason why I called it that was it would have sounded weird if I just said the name of the actual method. But I believe that a method of defense is revealed. It's given to us in scripture. And so in light of that, I, I would say that the method that I follow seeks, okay, to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, even the thoughts of the unbeliever. I'll say that again. So my method is to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means every thought that I have about anything, my reasoning process, the way I engage in the reasoning uh, process, the method that I use, and I seek to bring into captivity the thoughts of the unbeliever by showing that unless he thinks along these categories that God has revealed, he really doesn't have a foundation at all. And so how that plays out is going to depend on obviously who I'm speaking with. And you might have questions about what that looks like, but I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So this this is kind of known as presuppositionalism or presuppositional apologetics. For our listeners, can can you kind of unpack why it's called presuppositionalism? Yeah, presuppositionalism is called presuppositionalism because there's a great emphasis placed on one's presuppositions or their elementary assumptions. Uh, so instead of arguing endlessly um, about the facts, about pieces of evidence like data points, the presuppositionalist sees the importance of understanding not just the facts, but the philosophy of facts. What is the intellectual context that gives meaning to the facts? And so without addressing that broader context, then we're not really, you know, we're going to be throwing facts at each other. And because we wear worldview glasses, so to speak, uh, the unbeliever and the believer filters the data through those lenses. And so uh, you have this issue of like talking past your opponent because you really haven't gotten to the foundational issues, the broader outlook on the world that affects and impacts how the data and evidence is interpreted. So presuppositionalists um, will argue, and this is kind of what makes it different from other methodologies. Um, and I like to simplify it in this way. Classical apologetics and evidential apologetics and, and any variation of that is what I call a bottom-up approach. It works its way up to the conclusion, therefore God exists, or therefore it's more reasonable to believe that God exists, or therefore whatever. The presuppositional uh, methodology is a top-down approach. It doesn't try to argue to the conclusion that God exists. Rather, it says that unless you accept the existence of God, you couldn't reach any conclusion uh, you know, without that particular foundation. So it starts with God and argues what we call transcendentally. That without this God, you couldn't make sense out of anything. So it's more of a top-down approach. God is not simply a conclusion to a line of reasoning. 
He is the foundation by which any line of reasoning makes sense at all. I think that would help our listeners to start to uh, get their head around it if they've not been familiar with it before. Sure. When you talk about a top-down approach, for instance, the picture that comes to my mind is that, for instance, if someone is arguing that if God exists, he's hiding himself, and, uh, you know, a God that would hide himself like that, that's, that's a problem. And so my first response is, well, I'm not going to argue about a generic God that is mm-hmm. that we're just uh, coming up with our idea of God. I'm going to argue from the God revealed in the Bible, and I'm going to say this whole Christian worldview answers and explains and describes a God who hides himself and so on and how he reveals himself. So he's hidden and he re- reveals himself and that sort of thing. So I'm arguing from the top down, it seems to me in that sense, or from the full package, not building piece by piece to try to persuade the person. So maybe I'm doing presuppositional apologetics in that sense, but I'm wondering, would you differentiate between simply comparing worldviews and how they best explain reality? Because sometimes I think about, we do just comparative analyses of, well, how does atheism explain our experience versus how does the Christian worldview explain our experience? Is that different than what you're talking about? And, and, and if so, how, how would that be different? It's part of it. I wouldn't say that someone who follows my methodology is the only one who's doing worldview analysis. I think we're all doing worldview analysis. You know, we ask which perspective is making sense out of the data, right? I think the unique aspect of the of the method that I use, we do worldview analysis, but I think we're making a stronger claim. We're not just simply asking, you know, which worldview makes sense out of the data. We're also we're also asserting that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that does. And that's where some, some even within the, the Christian perspective and different apologetic traditions, they'll, they'll think that's it's a little bit ambitious. And I think we should kind of pull it back a little bit. Um, but the presuppositionalist thinks that's, that's the position we should be taking biblically. Um, the Bible doesn't make any apologies for its absolute claims that it's making um, with respect to the existence of God and the necessity of God. Uh, for making sense out of our experience and things like that. So um, we're not simply doing worldview analysis, but we are doing worldview analysis to be sure. And I think in that sense, if we kind of look at it at the surface level, a lot of what I would be doing as a presuppositionalist will look very similar to say, a, you know, the person that's using a cumulative case. Now it's not exactly the same, but there are similarities. In like fashion, you know, if someone were to walk up to me and say, hey, you know, I'm doubting whether Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, I jump right into the historical evidence for the resurrection. So what I'm saying might look very similar to what you might hear a classicalist or an evidentialist say, um, but there are some differences. I always make a distinction between the use of evidences and the utilization of evidentialism as a methodology. See, some people make the mistake that when a presuppositionalist uses evidences, he ceases to be a presuppositionalist and now is putting his evidentialist hat on, and that's not true. When a presuppositionalist uses evidences, he does not cease to be a presuppositionalist. He just uses evidences in a way that is consistent with his broader Christian worldview framework. So, um, so I think there is a difference there. Now, there are some more issues to tease out there, to be sure, but kind of in a thumbnail sketch, I think that would be uh, an important difference. One thing I want to try to do in the interview is, is uh, tease out what, are the, what is the essence of that approach. I suppose one question I thought of that would maybe help me to clarify that in my own mind is, if I were a presuppositionalist tomorrow, what would I stop doing? 
let's say I don't know what presuppositionalism is, and I say, well, I want to honor God in my approach, um, so show me how to do that better. What do I need to stop doing? Because it sounds like this is the approach that, that honors God more. Does that make sense? I'm just wondering what would I need to well, stop I wanna, doing? I want to clarify. Yeah. I want to clarify. I don't think it's impossible to be a classicalist or an evidentialist and like, I, I don't think it's impossible to do those and, and not honor God. I think you can honor God in whatever methodology you use, but we would argue that a presuppositional approach would be more consistent if we are more conscious of the connection between our worldview commitments and how that impacts how we engage on believers. That is honoring to God in the sense that we are conscious of that commitment. And so that commitment shines through even when we present the claims of the Christian faith to the unbelieving world. Now, if someone takes a different approach, I know John Frame once told me through a, a text in, on Facebook, I go back and forth with him every so often. I mean, he's a, retired now, but every now and then I can squeeze a little nuggets of wisdom. He, he said something along the lines that at, at the heart of it, most Christians are presuppositionalists at the heart. Even if they don't adhere to the method, in a general sense, it's it's everyone's desire who are truly Christian to defend the, the Christian faith in a way that honors God. We just disagree, the methodologies disagree as to what that specifically looks like. So I'm not saying that if you're a classicalist or an evidentialist, you can't honor God. I'm just saying that the presuppositionalist is in a position to do it consistently in that we're conscious of the connection between our worldview commitments and how that those commitments don't change they shine through the apologetic encounter. Now, what would change for you tomorrow? It depends. I don't know what you do today. Um, <laughs> you know, there are, you know, I, I have a friend who uh, is, he classifies himself as a classicalist. And so we would talk, you know, the presuppositionalists make a big deal about how Christians in defending the faith, they need to move away from presenting evidence that assumes the autonomy of the unbeliever and neutrality of one's ability to interpret facts. And a classicalist friend of mine, he says, well, I don't assume either of those things. I'm like, well, you're, you're being more consistently presuppositional, even though you categorize yourself in a particular way. Van Til, for example, um, didn't think that people who were not presuppositionalist were simply affirming explicitly autonomy and neutrality in their apologetic method. Some people do, but he says, listen, especially within the Reformed community that used a classical approach. He says, listen, a skunk has snuck into your house. You say one thing theologically, right? No neutrality, no autonomy, but you've allowed these elements to sneak into your apologetic methodology, and here's how, right? So not everyone affirms neutrality and autonomy. Some people do. I've, I've heard Christians who say, yes, I believe we need to be autonomous and neutral with respect to the facts. Um, but if you're not doing those things, you're, you're not granting autonomy and neutrality, and you're presenting evidence uh, in a way that is consistent with your biblical commitments, I mean, you can call yourself whatever you are. You're being very much presuppositional. I mean, who cares about titles and categories at that, at that moment? You know, I don't think to be a presuppositionalist, if you're going to turn to be a presupposition today, that you have to throw out your Kalam cosmological argument or your teleological argument or your moral argument or whatever. Um, Bonson um, had issue with some of the traditional proofs. I mean, he didn't, he didn't agree with the traditional formulation of the cosmological argument, but that's not an essential feature of presuppositionalism. You can be a presuppositionalist, disagree with Bonson's critique of the cosmological argument, and use cosmological arguments within a presuppositional framework. 
You know, I would go into the details of the resurrection. If someone asked me, if someone asked me about the beginning of the universe, like if, if everything is evidence for God, I can start anywhere. So I can start wherever the unbeliever wants to start and that's okay. So I think um, when you ask the question, what would I be doing differently? Some, sometimes people have it set up in their minds that, hey, presuppositional argumentation, there's some really interesting things about it that I really want to kind of use. There's some value there. But there's so many good uses of these traditional arguments. And if I become a presuppositionalist, I can't use those other arguments. And that's, that's not necessarily true. Okay. Hmm. So uh, you talk about a presuppositionalist framework. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that? maybe over and against an uh, presuppositionalist methodology, because I'm, I'm still, uh, I, I have to apologize because I'm still tripping over that term presuppositionalism um, because it's like that documentary. What is a woman? <laughs> well, as a woman, <laughs> what is a presuppositionalist? It's someone who identifies as a presuppositionalist, <laughs> you know? Um, well, well, what yeah. is presuppositionalism? Uh, so I'm trying to hammer that down because, well, who's, where does that definition come from? Is that just a, um, a term that is sort of a general catch-all for a reformed approach to doing apologetics that emphasizes, you know, those things that you mentioned, like uh, autonomy and uh, things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is why Dr. Scott Oliphant uh, at Westminster, he doesn't like the term. Presuppositionalism is too ambiguous, and there is a broad umbrella. There are a lot of um, yeah. versions of presuppositionalism that are under the umbrella. So if you're just saying, well, what is you know, presuppositionalism. Well, it really does depend what presuppositionalist you ask, but specifically, I mean, to simplify it, if I don't, if I can stay away from all the technical jargon, I'm going to stick to my guns and say presuppositionalism is an apologetic methodology, which seeks to bring, bring under, bring into captivity every thought, right? To bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, including the thoughts of the unbeliever. That's a generic. Now, what that looks like, you'll have disagreements. Oh, well, it should be this way. It should be that. But the general principle, if I were to kind of remove all of those distinctions between, you know, this Vantillian and this person who thinks he's interpreting Vantill better, you know, if you're the Framian sort or the Bonsonian sort or whatever, just as a general principle, I think Bonson, Frame, Dr. Anderson would agree with me in this broader sense that whatever presuppositionalism is, it is whatever method more consistently seeks to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and more consistently does that even when engaging the unbeliever. Well, I was just curious as to where where is it that I could find this approach kind of modeled in Scripture? Yeah. So uh, so this is a common question. I think it's a it's a good question. When people say presuppositionalism is biblical, I'm not I'm not at least I'm not. I'm not saying right. that there is, you know, you're going to see you know, uh, the apostle Paul give you like a flat out transcendental proof. Mm -hmm. I would say that presuppositionalism is biblical in this sense, in that it is drawn from consistent, uh, consistent principles in scripture. So, um, so for example, um, when we take a look at the nature of God, as I mentioned before, that creator creature distinction, the nature of knowledge and how that affects how we should think, right? Bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I would say that um, when anyone does apologetics in the Bible, it is in line with those biblical principles. Um, So I'm not going to say that in Acts 17, you know, Paul's giving a transcendental argument, but that's not to say that Paul isn't arguing presuppositionally. You can argue presuppositionally without just giving a flat out transcendental argument. He is arguing in ways that presuppose the authority of God's revelation. And so in that sense, I would draw from any area of scripture where 
um, we see that the authority of God is, is being presupposed and autonomy and neutrality is being relinquished. How, what that looks like is going to be in scripture. It's, it's in seed form, of course, because of the philosophical development throughout Western uh, history, um, we're going to see presuppositionalism kind of come at it in a different way, the way it looks, but the principles are still there. You know, I can okay. talk about, oh, good. Did you, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just, I guess I'm thinking that, that, you know, evidentialists or classicalists will often point to Acts 17. Sure. And they'll often say, you know, here we don't, we don't see Paul, you know, arguing presuppositionally. I'm interested, you said that Paul is arguing there, I think you said, correct me if I don't have you right here, he is arguing from the authority of God's revelation. So in a sense, he is arguing presuppositionally. Can you unpack that a little bit yeah. for me? And it, like, how is he doing, how is what he's doing there in Acts 17? And listeners, you'll have to look up the passage if you're not familiar with it. How, how is what he's doing there? How could that be considered presuppositionalism? Yeah. Well, well, here's the thing. This is why I think Brian uh, mentioned it when he tried to summarize the presuppositional view in that presuppositionalists don't argue in a piecemeal fashion, block by block. Um, and in like fashion, um, when we read Acts 17, that's not going to be considered in isolation to everything else that Paul says with respect to saying that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is nothing outside that context. And so when he's arguing in Acts 17, I interpret Acts 17 holistically with respect to the consistency with which Paul presents the issues with, with respect to knowledge and Christ's authority and how that should affect our thinking, the nature of the unbeliever's thought. When I talk to evidentialists and they say, look, you know, the apostles appeal to the resurrection. They appeal to evidences. Again, that completely misses the point. The, the presuppositionalist doesn't deny that the apostles appeal to evidence, but are they appealing to evidence that should be understood neutrally and assumes the autonomy of the unbeliever? Of course not, because we have in scripture where the Bible t tells us that you're either with me or against me. The Bible tells us that the natural man has a natural bent against God. He is at enmity uh, with God at the beginning, unless he is born of the spirit. So when we take Acts 17 within the broader context of those didactic passages where Paul gives us really the divine commentary with respect to the natural man's thinking process, the nature of God's revelation and how that it comes to bear on the unbeliever, uh, then you get a completely different picture. The evidentialist and the classicalist don't vindicate their position by simply pointing to instances in scripture where people are appealing to evidences. That's the presuppositionalist. I mean, I appeal to evidence, but I don't assume neutrality and autonomy. I'd say, listen, you know, these are powerful evidences, but, you know, in order, in order to understand this, uh, you need to have a, the right lenses, the le right lens, so to speak. And that's going to be the biblical, the biblical worldview framework. So um, Acts 17, I wouldn't use as a standalone exemplification of presuppositionalism, but I would say that it's presuppositionalism when we consider the broader context of the scriptures with respect to the nature of God, his authority, the reasoning process, how we are to reason and think in, along the lines of bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that the natural man is at enmity with God. All these sorts of things need to be taken into consideration. We isolate those, then I lose the broader context, right? It assumes already that we can talk about these things independent of the broader context, and I, and I reject that. Okay, yeah, all right. That, that's very helpful to see how, from your perspective, that could be considered presuppositionalist. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Chad, it's kind of like the free will debate. When someone says, look, the Bible says, you know, that he could have done otherwise, right? You know, like mm -hmm. they'll, they'll, they'll say, look, free will. Uh, and it, the Bible doesn't 
give us explicit passages that when you read it at face value, that has to be libertarian free will. You have different versions of free will. Maybe maybe the Bible teaches libertarian free will, but you don't get that from simply um, reading a passage which indicates that someone is given a choice, right? It's the mm-hmm. same thing. When we take a passage which um, gives examples of people appealing to evidence, that doesn't support evidentialism necessarily. We need to look mm-hmm. at the, what all of the scriptures say with respect to, to those issues. So I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Uh, so would you say presuppositionalism is basically saying that, hey, when we're doing apologetics, there are a few things that we tend to be forgetting here, and they are mm-hmm. these theological elements. And they, if we would take these theological elements into consideration, it would probably, at least some of the time, change our approach. Would that be fair enough yeah. to say that, that simply um, your view would say, if we're not taking the, the reality of what's going on with um, unbelievers, into account mm-hmm. uh, from the theological perspective, then we're going to just assume that we, for instance, could be trying to argue them into the kingdom when, uh, mm-hmm. by convincing them, see, God exists. If I can just show you that there's a God out there, a generic God, um, mm-hmm. you know, then I've, I've made some progress. When would it be right to say that from your view, it would be like, you're spending a lot of time, but you're compromising here thinking that just getting that part's good enough. Would that be accurate or? Yeah, I, I'm sorry to quote Dr. Oliphant again, but I think he's he's so right on this point. I remember him, I don't know if this is original to Dr. Oliphant, but he, he said this, he, he defined apologetics as the application of Christian theology to unbelief. So that even when we engage the unbeliever, the Bible gives us a theology of the unbeliever. And we cannot forsake what the Bible says about the unbeliever when we are presenting the Christian worldview to them. Um, so I think that's very helpful. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, this is very important. I, if, a, if I was talking to a fellow Christian apologist who, you know, argued along the lines you just presented, I, I would read this passage to them. Uh, Romans 1, 18 and on, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now notice, this passage presents the existence of God as unambiguous, contrary to the hiddenness of God sorts of arguments, because it says that what can be known about God is plain to them. Why is it plain to them? Because God himself has shown it to them. What is seen? What is seen here so clearly? His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature— These things are clearly perceived through what has been made so that they are literally without an apologetic. For although they knew God, the Greek there, nontes ton theon, literally knowing the God. This implies that the God they know, the God they have no excuse for their rejection of, is the one true God. It also teaches that the unbeliever does in fact have a knowledge of this God uh, that's being suppressed, uh, which the passage clearly speaks of. So when... I hear Christian apologists present a case for the Christian God. I would think it's unbiblical, not that they're sinning or doing any, you know, people make, you know, you got the extreme, oh, you're sinning. If you do. Right, 
Right. Yeah, like, shut up. Right, you know, you're not, you're not. Saying, okay. Yeah. But, but, but what I'm saying is why are you presenting the case for the Christian worldview in a way that is in conflict with what the Bible says the unbeliever actually knows and is suppressing? Now we have to ask ourselves the question, are we going to believe what the unbeliever says about himself or are we going to believe what God has said about the unbeliever? And according to scripture, in some way, maybe, it, maybe it's difficult to explain this and maybe unpack it, but in some way, shape, or form, if the Bible's the word of God, right, this unbeliever has a knowledge of God. So that when the unbeliever says, I don't know God, in some way, shape, or form, that person is suppressing the truth. Now, if you're saying, well, how is he doing it? I'm sure there are theologians that are much more well-versed in, in you know, these sorts of things to explain it in detail. But let's just suppose I don't even know how to explain it, okay? If the Bible's true, that person has the truth and is suppressing it in some way. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to present the truth of the Christian worldview, part of the truth of the Christian worldview is that the unbeliever knows this God I'm speaking of, right? So I'm not going to present the Christian worldview as though I am presenting new information to an otherwise ignorant person, but rather to be consistent with scriptural principles I want to unmask the unbeliever and reveal to him what he in fact knows and is suppressing in his unrighteousness. And people don't like that because it is very ambitious. It's, uh, it's very aggressive in a sense. You're kind of just cutting through all of the weeds and, and you're going against what the unbeliever says about himself. You're going against our natural inclination to just really want to be nice and be like, well, if he says he doesn't know God, I mean, let me, let me take his word for it and work from there. Well, this is, this is where we have to go back to what I said at the beginning. Apologetics is, is the attempt to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Even the thought that is put forth by the unbeliever, that he doesn't know the God you're speaking. When he says, I don't know the God you're, you're speaking of, I need to take that concept and bring it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ because Scripture teaches us, he, in some way, shape, or form, in a very profound sense, he does know this God. How do we demonstrate that? How do we move beyond the mere assertion that he knows? This is where we go into the worldview analysis. When we ask the unbeliever to give an account for the things he takes for granted, that whole process is for the very purpose to show that on his own foundation, he doesn't know those things, right? His position is reduced to absurdity. In order to make sense out of things he takes for granted, we need to show him you're actually borrowing from the Christian worldview, and that's evidence. It is a data point showing that what you say with your mouth is not what you really believe in your heart. You say the world is random, but you assume uniformity. You say there is no purpose or, or absolute morality, yet you are indignant when you see atrocities being committed. There is that tension where the image of God, of the unbeliever, is seeping out He's like a sponge. I want to squeeze the sponge and show that the image of God is there and that you are suppressing important knowledge, right, uh, of, your, of your maker. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the issue is, is that if I'm coming into a conversation and I'm assuming when somebody says, well, I'm an unbeliever, I don't believe God exists, and I take their word for it, it basically boils down to, well, but Chad, Scripture says otherwise. Scripture says that he knows in some sense we can debate what that sense is, but he knows in some sense that God does exist. So it boils down to, are you going to trust the word of God or are you going to trust what that person is saying? 
And the methodology is, is we're going to trust what the word of God says, and we're going to operate from there. Right. But what we don't say, and uh, I'm not going to look at the person and say, listen, you're lying to me right now. You really know, you know, that's not what I'm going to do. I I want to be. I have heard some people go that route. I have as well. Right. Um, But, but I want to lovingly show that the suppression of the knowledge is there, not as a jerk, just end all means of communication by just saying, you're a liar. And then that's it. You know, you know, Eli, I wonder one of the things I'm hearing as I, as I listen to you talk that strikes me is that your approach of, Mm -hmm. of this presuppositional approach is a much, I think, richer, fuller approach of presuppositionalism. And I would even say reasonable approach Whereas I think sometimes the presupp- when people think of presuppositionalism, they, they automatically think of Cy Ten Bruggenkate. Mm-hmm. And his approach to me is, is very different from yours. Sure. In the sure. sense that I see you still trying to honor the, the individual, you know, um, use individual evidences when necessary. And so I think sometimes I wonder if presuppositionalism gets a bad rap in a case because they're only kind of seeing it through that lens. Yes. Um, uh, to be perfectly honest, there's nothing I'm saying, unless I misspoke at some point, that's inconsistent with Van Til. Even Van Til said, I don't reject the traditional proofs. I only ask that they are reformulated in such a way that are consist- consistent with our Christian convictions. And mm. in some, I think in the defense of the faith, or I don't remember the book, but he says at some point in our conversation, he goes, I find historical apologetics necessary. He says it's necessary to go into the intricacies of the, of the evidence. So there's no, when I appeal to evidence, I'm not being quote unquote more reasonable. I mean, that's just, you know, that's what Van Til taught us. Now, someone like Sai, who's a friend of mine, um, and we've had discussions, we kind of disagree on, you know, how, what this looks like, but you, you find that even within the classical, you know, classical apologists oh, of course, don't argue of course. in the same way. Um, and, and I think that some of the the points that he takes and others, sometimes it's not essential. Uh, we're not talking about essential features of presuppositionalism. We're talking about accidental features that some presuppositionalists don't like to give evidences where others will say, well, wait a minute, there's an important use of evidences here. Let me show you something right now. If you don't mind me stepping away for like oh, no. seven seconds. Excellent. It's called Van Til and the Use of Evidence. Van huh. Til by by Tom Nataro, and it's a tiny little book, and it is the best. You read it, and he talks about specifically the evidence within a presuppositional framework. So when I'm speaking of evidences, I'm not being the more reasonable presuppositionalist. I'm just being as consistent as I possibly can with Van Til and and even Bonson, even though Bonson, as I said, rejected some of the traditional proofs, his rejection of them weren't essential to presuppositionalism. They were just his particular disagreements, thinking that some of them were just were just bad arguments. Right. And and I might have chosen my words poorly there, to be honest, and saying you're, you're being more reasonable that that maybe that sure. wasn't the best way to say it. I guess what I meant was, is your your view to me. And again, this is somebody who's wanting to grasp and understand presuppositional apologetics. You don't have to apologize. Just Yeah. yeah. No, but, but you, you know, when I watched size film to answer the fool or something like yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, you know, he, he kind of has a lot of the classical or, or evidential authors. I mean, their books and, and even their approaches. I mean, it, it's, it, it's presented in a very negative light in the sense that I wouldn't walk away from that film and go, Oh, he's in, he's in favor of using those evidences. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Um, but again, maybe that was me misunderstanding the point sure. of, of doing yeah, that in the yeah. film, you know? Well, well, maybe, maybe that would be his position. I'd, I'd have to talk to him about that to see where he, where he go where he's coming from. But I would agree with Cy, uh, in terms of some of the criticisms that he may give with respect to the methods that use some of those arguments in those books. That doesn't mean those books are, are useless. Like for me, as a presuppositionalist myself, I don't find a lot of presuppositional books that focus on evidence. So where am I going to go when I need to give specific information? I'm going to crack open William Lane Craig, his section on historical evidence for the resurrection. And I'm going to use that to, to the best of my ability in a way that's consistent with my broader uh, framework. And this sure. is one of the reasons why I have invited classicalists and evidentialists on my show, not because I'm in perfect agreement, but because they've done a good job with the data, even though I disagree with the framework, they've done a good job with the data that's useful for presuppers to say, hey, that's a really good data point. How can I benefit from this other tradition, which I, I don't agree with? We have kind of important disagreements, but there's something there. Just as non-presuppositionalists uh, have looked at the transcendental argument and presuppositionalism and say, I don't agree with it, but there's some useful points there. We're not, you know, it's not relativism, right? One of us is doing it right or all of us is doing it wrong. I get right. that. But I think that's an important, at least, I mean, you know, like classicalists are my brothers in Christ. I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. going to throw everything there, you know, everything they do out the window. Yeah. I've learned from Frank Turek. I've learned from William Lane Craig. I've learned from, you know, uh, John Lennox and all these other guys. I don't agree on everything, but that, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. We have to learn from one another and it's possible to do that without giving up our strong convictions with respect to apologetic methodology and our theological commitments. I think it's, I think it's possible. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks for letting me kind of wrestle out loud through that. No worries. We know you're hurting, man. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chad, you need someone to talk to. Have you been traumatized? Have you been traumatized by a presuppositionalist lately? Call the number on the bottom of your screen. <laughs> We're ready to believe you. <laughs> that was perfect, uh, Brian. Yes, those guys on TV. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I like what you're saying there about uh, application of Christian theology to unbelief. I guess it pushes the question back to whose theology, or then how do we apply it? Um, so back to what Chad said about, you know, hearing some people maybe get into an atheist's face if they say they don't believe in God, a Christian could say, well, yes, you do. That would be one way of applying it. <laughs> but my thought is that that would inform me that I know I just don't I don't take that for granted, but I wouldn't shove that in their face. I, my thought is you know, looking at Romans one that, OK, these evidences uh, from the scripture, the scripture says that these are evidences that uh, leave them without excuse. So wouldn't it be great if I just got those evidences and just shoved them back in their face and said, no, these, see, this shows God. Um, that's, that's how I, in my mind, I'm thinking that I'm applying that. And I don't think I'm, I yeah. think that's a right application. And in the, in a sense of also, well, I'm giving them what they're say they're lacking. I'm giving them what the scripture says is leaving them without excuse. And in my mind, I'm thinking that they know God exists. They're suppressing that. And that's why I'm willing to go ahead and not take their word for it. But I, I guess I wouldn't say, hey, yeah, sure you do. Well, maybe once in a while. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think there's an appropriate, I think there's an appropriate time. I mean, the Bible says the fool says in his heart there, there is no God. But am I going to run around and call everyone a fool? Well, yeah. well no. 
Just because the Bible teaches something doesn't mean that that specific phraseology needs to be inserted in every moment of our conversation with people. Yeah. You said that, well, I, I will give them, ev- I'll throw the evidence back in their face. I, I, I know that the scripture says they have a knowledge of God. And the way you respond is you give them what they're saying they don't have, the, the evidence. Again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's very presuppositional. You see, a cosmological argument, if it's a good argument, is appropriate if the purpose of the argument is not to assume the person doesn't have a knowledge of God, but the purpose of the argument is to show that in this specific instance of, say, causality, you know precisely what I'm talking about. You know, like like someone has hmm. framed up, you know, it's not, it's not a causation, therefore God, it's God, therefore causation. It is God who gives meaning to the very concept of causation. So throwing the evidence back at them for the purpose of unmasking a suppressed truth, I think is a consistent biblical way to use specific evidences. So yeah. to that end, I think that's, that's fine. I, uh, that's helpful. I'm a presuppositionalist in this sense. I don't think we should try to argue God just throwing around the tools of philosophy of religion. And what I mean by that is that sometimes I see people debating over philosophy of religion sort of arguments hypothesizing over a god would be this way a god would be that way and then christian apologists take our time and just throw around you know as pascal would say the god of the philosophers you know we're throwing around concepts of what god would be like and i'm like to me i'm like i don't even want to play that game if we're talking about god we all, I, here's my belief, biblically informed, we all know we're talking about the Christian God here, but you guys mm. just want to relegate it to uh, this philosophy of religion. So in that sense, I think I'm presuppositionalist because I, ref, in my mind, I refuse to play this game of uh, uh, let's build this piece by piece and see if we can arrive at at the Christianity. I'm like, no, I'm starting from top down. <laughs> you know, that's why I say I'm very sympathetic to that. And I'm trying to understand it more. I think that that was excellent. I thought, I think you had a lot of insightful things in there. I, you are, at, if, if just by observing and listening to what you're saying, you are a presuppositionalist at heart, but again, who cares about the labels? I think that's yeah. another thing. It's like, mm. well, am I a presuppositional? Am I, listen, bring every thought uh, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Who cares what you call it? It's it's that team mentality that creates a lot of these unnecessary boundaries. You know, if you want to call yourself a classicalist, but you're but what you're doing is not assuming autonomy, not assuming uh, neutrality. You're not arguing for the God of the philosophers and you're talking. OK, I mean, cool. I mean, I might not. I mean, the, the name kind of has baggage with it. But if you're going to be more consistent, at least as I see it with your scriptural convictions, like you're moving in the right direction. You know, uh, who cares what you call yourself at that point? Yeah. Now, I want to say, because I know some people who listen to this who are more on the dogmatic side. Now, I am dogmatic. I'm not take. I mean, I believe presuppositional methodology is the way to go. Um, but I, I'm also being cautious of, you know, the, the power of the label. People are struggling with the label. I, I want to talk about just let's do this faithfully and you call yourself whatever the heck you want. Yeah, that makes um, a lot of I'm sense. Not, I'm not going light on my convictions. I do think that presuppositionalism is unique in very important ways. I think it does express the best with respect to biblical principles and and things like that. So I'm not going wishy-washy, but I do think that we need to, you know, um, be creative in the ways we apply those biblical principles. And that's going to include sometimes talking to evidence. It includes meeting the unbeliever where they are. This is why Van Til made a very important distinction between 
neutral ground, which he didn't believe existed, and common ground. Neutral ground is this no man's land in which facts can be understood independent of our presuppositions. We know that doesn't exist. But there is common ground. Me and the unbeliever are both made in the image of God, and I could employ a wide range of tools to bring that image of God in them out in the discussion so that they can see where I'm getting at. So mm -hmm. you have transcendental argumentation, which is kind of a touchstone of presuppositional methodology, but there's also kind of this broader presuppositional line of reasoning where I don't always have to bring a transcendental argument. I could appeal to some specific data point and show that even this point here, you can't understand this point without the God I'm speaking of. So we can talk about the things the unbeliever wants to talk about, whether it's cosmology, whether it's aesthetics, whether it's morality or, or whatever. As I said before, if the Christian worldview is true and God has given meaning to all that he's created, he's defined things as they are and everything evidences our maker, then we can talk about literally anything. We don't have to use the fancy terminology. Right? You want to, I mean, Bonson came up with the toothpaste proof for God's existence. I mean, toothpaste. He, <laughs> you can talk about anything. You squeeze the yeah. toothpaste. He, he drew from the illustration of squeeze, squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. Um, and he tried to show that squeezing toothpaste out of the tooth, toothpaste tube um, presupposes the uniformity of nature. And we asked the question, which worldview makes better sense of this idea that we could expect the future will be like the past. When I squeeze the toothpaste tube tomorrow, will it have the same effect that it did the day before? Which worldview accounts for that regularity? The one that is sound and fury signifying nothing? Chance, that's all? Or a one that is created by a God who has given order and meaning and regularity uh, to the world? That's a, in a very colloquial, without getting into a kind of like an academic debate, those are the kinds of things I want to I want to ask the unbeliever without getting all transcendental. I can just ask, hey, which outlook on the world makes sense out of the toothpaste? Which outlook on the world makes sense out of the scientific enterprise itself? When we do science, I mean, people talk about faith versus science. Which faith, which world do faith make sense out of science? I think those are great ways to ask questions that lead us into a sort of presuppositional sort of conversation with the person. I was wondering something. Um, this is a secondary question. The, the answer to this is minimally important and it'll make sense, but it's one that I wanted to throw your way and just see what you thought about it. There, there's a certain brand of atheism that is more academic. Um, I'm thinking uh, real atheology or Jeffrey J. Louder, um, people like that who, you know, ben Watkins? what's that? Uh, real atheology. Is that with Ben Watkins? Yes. Yes. I almost and, debated it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the, one of the things I wanted to say is they tend to have a, a bit of a, I, I've noticed a bit of a disdain for presuppositional apologetics. There tends to be this stigma among more academic atheists that it's this ridiculous, you know, approach that's not even worth their time kind of thing. And while I, I, I freely understand and freely admit that that really doesn't matter if it if it if it's right, it's right. It doesn't matter if they sure, like it. Sure. But but it got me thinking, is is that is that a true representation that it, that there's no academic representation, uh, you know, of presuppositional apologetics? Is it is it true that it's just this fringe approach, you know, that doesn't doesn't deserve to be addressed? Um, well, the fringe approach versus the doesn't need to be addressed. There are two different things, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Um, there aren't a lot of presuppositionalists, but I mean, you definitely have academic presuppositionalists. I mean, and it depends how you define academic. I mean, you have Dr. James Anderson at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was a, he's an analytic philosopher. Um, you have John Frame, you have Vern Poitras. Um, you have, I mean, Van Til um, was a philosopher. He had a PhD in philosophy, contrary to Contrary to William Lane Craig, who said he wasn't a philosopher, uh, he, he is a philosopher. Whether you think he's a good one or not, he's a philosopher. He dealt yeah. with, um, he, he had the credentials and he dealt with the philosophical literature at the time, you know, idealism and things like this. Yeah, you do have some academic defenders of it. But as you said, that's really irrelevant. When someone says, oh, presuppositionalism is not worth my time, the conversation doesn't start there. When you hear the reasons, then you see the reasons are terrible. One of the worst, this is the thing I look for when someone critiques presuppositionalism, because I have to really choose carefully who I interact with in online, like text through text, because then you can get sucked into a very long back and forth. Indeed. So, so I don't want to engage someone where I have to like, and I don't mean this kind of from a, um, an overconfident and prideful way, but I don't want to engage someone that I have to teach the basics so that they could actually understand correctly, this is what we actually saying, and then address their, you, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't, I just don't have time for that. But when I hear someone um, critique presuppositionalism, I know for a fact that they don't have a full grasp on it when they think it is so easily cast aside by claiming that it's circular. That's the, that's literally the worst. Like, like when someone says, mm -hmm. oh yeah, well you, it's like, wow, I've never heard that one before. Like it's just, <laughs> it's an old canard. It is completely based off misunderstanding as to the nature of authorities and fallacious circles. Yes, there are fallacious circles and there are non-fallacious circles. I remember having a conversation with Dr. Kirk McGregor, who is, okay, um, yeah. a Molinist. he is a philosopher. I had a conversation with him and I said that not all Forms of circularity is fallacious. And, and I love Dr. McGregor. He's super nice. I mean, this is not like a, you know, anything against him. Sure. But I remember him, and he didn't mean this disrespectfully, but I remember saying not all circles are fallacious. And he bursted out in laughter. And then I said, well, wait a minute. If I'm going to assume rationalism and I'm going to demonstrate the reliability of reason, don't I have to presuppose reason to do that? And he goes, well, yeah, that's true. And I was thinking, then why did you laugh at me when I said this? <laughs> yeah. We obviously know. So, so this is not, you know, this it's, it's silly. Now maybe presuppositionalism is false, but you're not going to get anywhere just claiming it's, it's circular. Cause at the foundational level, it's all circular contrary to what some foundationalists say and others, everyone has a fundamental self-attesting starting point that you take as a given. All right. And we're arguing or the presuppositionalist is just starting with that saying, listen, we let's not beat around the bush. I do have a starting point and here it is. Right. So um, I think that's a, And when someone says it's not worth my time, the reasons are usually very bad and, and events of, of a big misunderstanding of what presuppositionalists are saying. That was super helpful. Thank you. If somebody's listening to this and they're new to this approach or they've heard about it and they're hearing you and they're thinking, whoa, this is not what I thought it was. I want to learn more about this. What would be kind of the one or two go to resources that you would say? you need to read this or you need to watch this lecture. Uh, what would yeah. be, what would be some resources that they would find really helpful? Well, for like a beginner. So if you want a super duper easy uh, introduction, mm -hmm. this is a book by Stephen Feinstein. It's called, uh, let me get in the camera here. We destroy arguments, hmm. how presuppositional apologetics empowers the believer to refute unbelief for a beginner. 
Okay, I think that's a good uh, a good book to use. Right, it goes over. Um, I'll just give you a look at the table of contents here. I don't know if you could see that. No. Okay, that's okay. So um, they go over building the apologetic, the theology of apologetics, the philosophy of apologetics, the epistemology, so on and so forth, and how to apply it. You apply it preparing your heart and mind, how the, how it's applied to atheism, macroevolution, the problem of evil, secular dualism and idealism. Even though that sounds complicated, it's really written in like a layman's, you know, a, a layman's way. So it's hmm. super, super uh, helpful at a super duper beginner's level. Okay. That's that. Okay. Of course, I cannot fail to mention this. Always Ready by Greg Bonson. This is an excellent beginners. The chapters can be read in literally like five minutes. They're super small. They're just a compilation of a bunch of articles. Um, and you get the biblical basis for the method. And then you get the application of the method. And then there is a giant portion at the end, which is worth the price of the book itself, where Greg Bonson walks through Acts chapter 17 and shows you the presuppositional emphasis in the Apostle Paul. Oh, wow. And so he kind of unpacks that. That's the latter part. That's the, actually the back end of the book. It's pretty, it's fairly thick portion of it as well. It's entitled Biblical Exposition of Acts 17. Okay. And so that's a great introduction um, for people. Um, after uh, Greg Bonson passed, I mean, we have most of his books and his recorded lectures, but recently I saw this book come out by Greg Bonson against all opposition. And this book the impossibility of the contrary. Now, by the time these books came out, I said, well, wait a second. I've been a Bonson fan for quite some time. I do not remember him writing this, these books. Actually, these books just came out by American Vision, and they are published transcripts of a series of lectures that Bonson gave. And so these are great introductory tools, which are complete with chapter study questions at the end of each chapter. So you can kind of walk through. Uh, if folks are interested on my on my website, my blog, I'm actually going to um, walk through the study questions and give my expanded answers to those study questions so people can kind of read through that. But these are excellent for beginners who want to get a uh, an easy but thorough um, look at to what presuppositionalism is all about. I would say that the two most important things a person could could use as a resource to be a good presuppositional apologists specifically, and just a Christian apologist in general, okay? Now, this is the generic, and people can say, well, of course, he's going to say this, but I, I totally mean it, and I'm not speaking tongue-in-cheek. Master the scriptures and get a good systematic theology. That is so important. In my experience, 99% of people who attack the Christian faith, those attacks are based upon misunderstandings of the scriptures. Yeah, And so knowing the, the data of scripture and having a good systematic understanding of Christian theology will equip you not only to be a good apologist in general, but specifically a good presuppositional apologist. Because it, as, as you're familiar, presuppositionalism is a worldview apologetic. We are analyzing and critiquing worldviews. Now, I had mentioned, we didn't talk about this in detail, but I mentioned us critiquing the unbeliever's worldview. That's called an internal critique in which we hypothetically grant the truth of the unbeliever's position to show that it actually fails on its own terms. But then what happens when we invite the unbeliever to jump into the Christian worldview and internally critique it? The way you survive as a presuppositionalist, the way you survive the internal critique 
is to know your theology. Because at that point, when they hypothetically grant the truth of the Christian worldview, when they start bringing up what they perceive as problems, the answer is just basic Christian theology. Well, the Trinity is not a contradiction because here's why. This is what the Bible says about it. Or the idea that Jesus is God in human flesh, that's not contradictory because this is what we believe about, blah, 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 blah. So you need to know the theology and the scriptural data to survive the internal critique, which we are inviting the unbeliever into our system, even as much as they invite us into theirs, and we kind of do that worldview analysis. Thanks for all of those recommendations, Eli. We're going to just have you point our listeners to your resources online um, and the best place to find where you're cranking out the content. Sure. Well, folks can obviously find me on YouTube. That's where all my stuff goes. I, I stream live on YouTube and Facebook simultaneously. So if you follow Revealed Apologetics on Facebook and on YouTube, you'll get the, the content there. They can check out my blog and my website, revealedapologetics.com. If someone is interested in supporting Revealed Apologetics, um, there's also an online course that I that I teach. I have recorded lectures with PowerPoint slides and outlines. People could sign up for that class and walk through the whole method in a more uh, systematic and chronological way. Um, and that's fun because I've done that in the past and have been able to meet people from all over the world. It's, it's pretty cool. And the Internet's just an amazing place sometimes. Uh, so people can do that if they want to if they want to sign up for that that's available there um also everything that's on my channel also gets transferred into podcast form and so people can check out revealed apologetics on itunes and lastly i am a traveling speaker so if uh, someone wanted to book me for a, an apologetics uh, workshop or lecture or something like that um they can reach out to me uh at my email revealed apologetics at gmail.com and my website as well. There's a way to get in touch with me. Super. Well, it's been really fun and the time has flown. We've learned a whole lot. Lots of great things to digest for those who are listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us, Eli. Thank you. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetic stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening.